everyone, and welcome to After Alexander, Episode 1, Little Alex. This week, we're going to be setting the stage on which the actors of the Hellenistic period will perform. The Seleucid dynasty, throughout their centuries of history, will be acting within the context of the life of Alexander the Great and the wars that follow his death, so it's important to recount what happens in the immediate aftermath. Now, picture the scene. Alexander has died, but he doesn't have an immediate heir apart from his paternal half-brother Archidaeus, who as an aside is thought to have had mild learning difficulties. However, Alexander's immediate family also stretches to multiple wives he'd married for dynastic and strategic purposes. One of these wives, Roxanne, was pregnant at the time of his death. This left everyone present in Babylon with a simple choice. Who should be the next king? The army favoured waiting to see if the unborn child would be male and handing his father's empire over to him in this case. Two leading generals, Perdiccas and Meliaga, were split on the issue themselves. Meliaga felt that Arideus, as the closest living male relative of Alexander at the time, should be chosen instead. Perdiccas, the leader of the cavalry, felt that the state should wait for Alexander's unborn child to be born and see if it was male. Eventually, a compromise was reached after Meliaga's death. Arideus would rule, and the unborn child, if male, would rule as co-monarch with him from then on. Arideus took the regnal name Philip III. As far as I can tell, he chose this name himself, most likely in honour of his father, King Philip II. Nine months later, in August 323 BCE, Roxana gave birth to a son, duly named Alexander. Before we can go on to talk about the new Philip III and his half-nephew, we're going to have to mention who the main players are at this time. We've already touched on one of them, Perdiccas, the most senior commander in Babylon at the time Alexander died. Perdiccas is supposed to have had Alexander's signet ring handed to him on his deathbed, a clear sign of authority being passed along to him. However, Perdiccas's central position was rivalled by Antipater, the man Alexander had left in charge of Macedon itself back in Europe when the army left to invade the Persian Empire. Moreover, he had a rival in Babylon at the time the regency was established, namely Meliega, the man whom we just covered. In other words, although Meliega was now dead, Perdiccas's power was far from certain in the immediate aftermath of Alexander's death in June. This is made clear by the fact that Perdiccas wanted to marry Nicaea, the daughter of Antipater, to form an alliance and work together. The situation changed, however, after Perdiccas travelled to Cappadocia. Cappadocia lies to the immediate west of the Taurus Mountains in Anatolia. In modern terms, it is in the southeast of Turkey. As an aside, it's worth noting that the Taurus Mountains are going to come up again in future episodes, so keep in mind that they are essentially right where the Anatolian Peninsula meets the rest of Asia. At the time Alexander died, Cappadocia was still under Persian rule, which Perdiccas aimed to change. In 322, then, Perdiccas invaded, accompanied by King Philip III and the infant Alexander, and won a resounding victory, a fact which gave him crucial political points with the army. This level of control over the royal army then allowed Perdiccas to feel secure enough to make his move. We don't know exactly when Alexander was crowned as Alexander IV and co-king of Macedon. However, thanks to inferences about when singular versus multiple kings are mentioned on official documents, we know he had been acclaimed by the autumn of 322. 
This move also allowed Perdiccas to consolidate his own position. By having his troops acclaim Alexander IV, he made clear that the regency established over Philip III also applied to little Alexander, giving him control over both kings. In addition, Perdiccas's powers were confirmed at around about the same time, with any checks which had been put into place during the settlement at Babylon being formally removed. As far as the people present at the acclamation were concerned, Perdiccas ruled supreme. Perdiccas had essentially forced an issue that nobody had thought through at the time Alexander the Great died. It had always been assumed that Alexander IV would be crowned king, but no thought had been given to his ultimate royal fate. In addition, Perdiccas had originally been established as regent for Philip III, but it had been assumed that this would not be indefinite. Now, having won the favour of his troops after Cappadocia, Perdiccas was able to get them to approve his custody over Philip III, and now also over Alexander IV. He had irrevocably tied the elevation of little Alex to, of the kingship to his own regency. If the issue was contested, it might have meant civil war. There was very little that the other generals could do about it when the news got out. Like it or hate it, Perdiccas was in possession of both kings, both the political chess pieces that really mattered. The proclamation demonstrated Perdiccas's own ambition, laying it bare for the first time. In the wake of it all, Antipater hurriedly agreed to the alliance and sent his daughter Nicaea to marry Perdiccas, presumably to salvage his own power after this clear bit of self-promotion. In case any of you are interested, this Nicaea is also the woman for who the city of Nicaea in Turkey is named, which would eventually be the site of the first ever church council in 325 CE. In the summer of 322 BCE, Perdiccas's situation improved still further. Sinani, the half-sister of Philip III, was killed at the hands of Perdiccas's brother Alcetas, for reasons that are not entirely clear. However, what's important is what happened afterwards. Sinani's death caused Perdiccas's standing to plummet among the army, so, to offset this, he arranged a marriage between Philip III and Sinani's daughter Eurydice. And yes, this does mean he was married to his own niece, but you're going to have to get used to this sort of thing, as it's unfortunately going to come up a lot in future centuries. Perdiccas's control on the royal family had now increased again, with the addition of a third member into his camp, and he had now effectively made himself the centre of the empire. Power may even have gone to his head slightly. By the winter of 322 and 321 BCE, a general called Antigonus had fled to Europe and to Antipater. He brought with him the accusation that Perdiccas aimed to discard Nicaea and marry Cleopatra, the full sister of Alexander the Great. If he did, this would have given him an inroad by which to claim the Macedonian throne itself. This usurpation by a regent had legal precedent. Philip II, the father of Alexander the Great, had originally been the junior branch of the Macedonian royal house. When his infant nephew Amintas IV had come to power after the boy's father Perdiccas II died, Philip had usurped the throne. Even if you don't believe that our regent Perdiccas had these lofty ambitions, it was certainly at the forefront of enough people's minds that Antipater broke off hostilities with another general he'd been warring with beforehand, named Craterus, and crossed into Anatolia in the spring of 321 BCE. That's where we'll leave the main narrative for now, with Antipater poised to rush back to the camp of the seemingly unstoppable Perdiccas. In part two, we'll discuss the early life of Seleucus, and where some of the more familiar names of the period, such as Ptolemy, Seleucus and Antigonus, have been while all this was going on. That's part two. 
after the interlude. See you then. According to the Encyclopedia Britannica website, Seleucus was born in 356 BCE. He was the son of Antiochus, a general in the army of Philip II. His mother's name is supposed to be Laodike, but I haven't found any concrete confirmation for this. Later myths would claim that Seleucus was actually the son of Apollo, but given that the town Seleucus founded are named Antioch and not Apolloville, I think we can be fairly certain which paternity we should believe. The only source I've been able to find so far for both of these is the Wikipedia page, so I will put in the link in the description and hopefully I will be able to find more concrete evidence for this at a later date. If so, I will update the description. As with most of Alexander's promoted men, Seleucus may well have grown up alongside the prince as a page to Philip II in the Macedonian capital of Pella. He was promoted by Alexander in an attempt to distance himself from the men his father had promoted, to surround himself with men his own age and create a new core of elites. It's worth noting that Antipater, despite being one of the men Philip II had promoted, was kept on. Seleucus only rose to prominence in the later stages of the conquests, becoming the leader of the Royal Hypaspists, the infantry division of the king's bodyguard. When Alexander died, Seleucus supported Perdiccas during the crisis at Babylon, when the division which had formed between the infantry and cavalry divisions of the army came to a head in Meliega and Perdiccas. Seleucus was duly promoted to Chiliarch by Perdiccas after their triumph, effectively becoming his second-in-command. He ran the day-to-day -day organization of the Companion Cavalry, which Perdiccas was still the leader of, but which he largely ignored due to his duties as regent of the Empire, which is understandable. And, until the Wars of the Successors break out, that's essentially Seleucus covered, the loyal understudy to the new boss, same as the old boss. Now, what about Ptolemy? He had been allotted Egypt in the settlements at Babylon. He is one of several men who have clearly decided that running their own province is a far better idea than being under the thumb of the imperial bureaucracy at this time. Ptolemy accordingly set about setting up his own administration in place of the old imperial one, as well as annexing the neighbouring province of Cyrenaica, although he's not quite gotten to active conflict with Perdiccas yet, as we'll see later, He's getting close, and Perdiccas has certainly gotten his eye on him. Antigonus, meanwhile, has fled to Europe and to Antipater, carrying his message of Perdiccas's imperial ambitions along with him. Antipater and Antigonus are both major players to watch, as they will both play a prominent role in the ensuing struggles. There are dozens of other names, but, honestly, I think that would be too much in one go. When and if I have to bring up new names, I will make sure to pause the narrative for a while to give them the attention that they no doubt deserve. So, that's where we'll leave the story for now. The Macedonian Empire is simmering, but although close to exploding into violent conflict, there's still a thin veneer holding everything together, just barely. And next time, we'll set about ripping that veneer right off as the first war of the successors begins in earnest, and the long road to the disintegration of Alexander's empire truly gets going. In the meantime, thank you for listening. Feel free to contact us at afteralexpod at gmail.com, again, afteralexpod at gmail.com, for any questions, comments, or feedback. Until next time, have a great week.
Thank you.